the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll wind our way through some of the news and stories of the last couple of days. We're also going to hear a classic interview with Thomas Perry, Images and Idols, Christianity for the Christian Life. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, taking a look at some of the news headlines, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, said that Trump is an imminent threat to our democracy, so lawmakers are going to move forward with impeachment again. So we're sort of ending this administration where it started with an uh, attempt, an effort to impeach the president. Well, the House is going to be moving forward with a resolution to impeach President Trump, according to the Speaker of the House, referring to the president in a letter to colleagues as an imminent threat to both the U.S. Constitution and democracy. There's so much that could be said about that in terms of who threatens the Constitution and democracy. But nonetheless, in the letter Sunday, Pelosi said the House will act with great solemnity with less than two weeks remaining before Trump is set to leave office in protecting our Constitution and our democracy, which is, of course, a constitutional republic. We will act with urgency because the president represents an imminent threat to both. Pelosi said the House will try to force Vice President Mike Pence and the cabinet to oust Trump by invoking the 25th Amendment. We'll talk more about that later in the program. And on Monday, House leaders are going to work to swiftly pass legislation to do that. Well, if it's blocked by Republicans, which is almost certain, the House will convene for a full House vote on Tuesday. Pelosi explained that the resolution calls for Pence, the vice president, to convene and mobilize the cabinet to activate the 25th Amendment to declare the president incapable of of executing the duties of his office. Under the procedure, the vice president would immediately exercise powers as acting president, at least for the next several days. In other developments, Chag Pergen, he says that right back to where we were last year, Dems are seeking to impeach President Trump. Alan Dershowitz calls Trump's impeachment a loaded weapon that would be so dangerous to the Constitution. And Mr. Clyburn, he says Trump, Trump's impeachment vote Uh, will happen this week as 195 lawmakers co-sponsored the articles. And Andrew McCarthy says Trump has committed an impeachable offense. Jonathan Turley says the Trump speech before the Capitol was not enough to impeach the president. Well, once again, Nancy Pelosi gets pretty sharp when she's asked about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez during a 60 Minutes interview. House Speaker Pelosi gave an extensive interview with 60 Minutes that aired on Sunday night. And one of the highlights was when correspondent Leslie Stahl asked her about the party's future leadership. Stahl pointed out that Pelosi is 80 years old. I'm sure she didn't appreciate being <laughs> having that pointed out. And House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer is 81, and she asked why there's no clear air in the party, especially since the squad, the group of young progressives, commands such a large following on social media. Well, the speaker told Stahl the question was essentially based on a false premise. She responded that party leaders have groomed future leaders, and perhaps she was unaware. Why does AOC, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat out of New York, complain that you have not been grooming younger people for leadership, Stahl asked. Pelosi responded, 
I don't know. You have to ask her because we are. Well, Stahl seemed to be uh, taken aback for a moment and said that was kind of sharp, kind of dismissing her. Well, again, in other developments, AOC says Pelosi and Schumer need to go, but warn of a Democratic power vacuum. Meanwhile, Hemingway says that AOC's opposition to Pelosi and Schumer exposes the complete disarray in the Democratic Party. Meanwhile, Pelosi announced new squad House committee assignments. We'll tell you what those are shortly. Pelosi is um, uh, says she's willing to take the blame for Democrat election losses, but she says she's, I should say, unwilling, but she's willing to accept credit for winning the majority, albeit a much slimmer majority than expected or hoped for. Representative Gates says Trump has no intention of resigning after the Capitol riot and will not leave the public stage at all. President Trump has uh, no intention of doing either, he said, um, following Trump's supporters' breach of the Capitol on the 6th. Uh, Representative Matt Gates from uh, Florida, Republican, told Fox Report Weekend host John Scott on Sunday that Trump remains the leader of people who believe America's best days are still ahead support law enforcement and who need to stand together and fight against a radical left-wing agenda that it appears Joe Biden intends to usher in with unified control over the government, with the House and the Senate. Representative Gates' comments come as the House is preparing to move forward with a resolution to impeach the president again. According to a letter from House Speaker Pelosi, she refers to the president as an imminent threat. And on Monday, House leaders will work to pass legislation that would force the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment, which he has already made clear he does not intend to do. Meanwhile, Representative uh, Cicilline says that Congress is obligated to impeach President Trump after the Capitol riot. And GOP Senator Ben Sass says uh, there is brokenness in Trump's soul and refuses to rule out impeachment. So apparently he has eyes into the president's soul. Representative Van Drew calls on uh, President-elect Biden to oppose a Trump impeachment, saying... Let's try to come together. And three capital riots uh, and votes against electoral college certification prompted businesses to pause political donations. Well, the Secret Service is investigating death threats against Vice President Pence. And the FBI is visiting extremists ahead of or rather visited extremists ahead of the capital riots, urging them not to travel to D.C. Apparently they spoke to the wrong folks. Three capital riots uh, and uh, uh, and this action. Well, Iran plans to execute a second wrestler, sparking outrage from the U.S. State Department. Social media site Gab gained about 10,000 users per hour. That's according to the CEO, claiming that after Trump's uh, permanent Twitter suspension, people are looking elsewhere. And the first cryptocurrency-only restaurant sale in the U.S. has launched. Amazon and Walmart, they're using artificial intelligence to decide on economic uh, Uh, sense to processing returns and Victoria's Secret is on the rebound with a new look with less products on the shelves after the pandemic. Parler um, is going to be down for a while without uh, AWS. The executive uh, director says we are clearly being singled out. More on that later in the program. And Fannie and Freddie are tightening their rules for condos in vacation locales. Well, at least 25 rioters are being investigated for terrorism as a result of the assault on the Capitol. Bill Weir points out that the horrific new video obtained by CNN shows a mega rioter in white hat and a backpack grab a D.C. Metro officer and pull him down Capitol steps where he is stomped and beaten with the American flagpole. At one point, they sing the Star Spangled Banner. 
Amy Swearer, on a photo of one of the rioters, said, time out. Did this guy breach the United States Capitol during a riot with a handgun plainly visible on his hip? Open carry is extremely illegal in D.C., and he just walked around like this uh, all day without MPD, the uh, uh, police there, Metropolitan Police Department, or anyone else noticing. Am I missing something? Well, there have now been more than a dozen resignations since the attack on the Capitol, and the cause of death of the Capitol policeman remains something of a mystery, at least to the general public. Lots of jobs were lost by Capitol Police as a result, and 28 times the media and Democrats excused violence by left-wing activists but are unified in condemning action that took place on the 6th. The Wall Street Journal says the tech giants are seeking to destroy conservative speech. And regarding Parler, the relatively new social media platform, the story notes, conservatives of all stripes watched as Twitter and Facebook took extraordinary measures to black out legitimate reporting on Hunter Biden in the run up to the election. Now, an informal confederation of web gatekeepers is methodically destroying a computer uh, or rather a competitor that is created to accommodate their views. Trump had a had to resort to the old-fashioned press release to respond to Twitter. And Kelly Paul, wife of Senator Rand Paul, points out, Hey, remember how for the last three years you have allowed thousands of hateful tweets celebrating my husband's assault and encouraging more violence against him? Well, I do. Again, all permitted by Twitter, picking and choosing what violent language and incitement is acceptable. Mr. Manchin, who is sort of on the fence, suddenly expresses an openness to D.C. statehood as well as Puerto Rico, an obvious power grab for the Democrats. And Citibank says it won't support candidates who objected to the Electoral College certification. By the way, that's just the GOP candidates, as far as we can tell, not the Democrats who objected in recent years as well. In fact, for every Republican presidential uh, race uh, for the last three administrations, Democrats have objected and gone through the same process we saw in uh, Washington last week. But apparently that was okay for Citibank and others who say they won't support candidates who objected this time around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Monday afternoon. By the way, the Oregon legislature has been... Uh, Paneled. We'll tell you more about that later in the program. And we have a classic interview with Thomas Perry, Images and Idols, Christianity for the Christian Life. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Just before the break, I started a story regarding Citibank that says they're not going to support candidates who objected to the Electoral College certification. Now, this is a regular practice in Washington where one side or the other objects to a single state, a series of states. In fact, uh, who was it that said that was her, the Democrat, um, senior Democrat, who said that was her proudest moment when she raised objections on a particular state with regard to a presidential election. But somehow this time around, it's different, even though the Constitution provides for it, uh, provides two hour debate regarding uh, that objection and then an opportunity for Congress to determine whether or not to move on. But this time, apparently, it's different. By the way, Marriott joined uh, joined them, Citibank. Um, Jeff uh, Blehar says the weaponization of the left of uh, uh, of capital, even as their more extreme elements claim to be socialist, Bernie Stalin did nothing uh, wrong, etc., is the real issue that we're going to be wrestling with over the near future. Hand wave all you want, juggernaut. 
Uh, it's going to be a massive fight. And, well, that's what we've seen over the last several years, so what apparently will continue. Critics of Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley are contacting the all-boys Jesuit high school from which he graduated more than 20 years ago to express their displeasure with the role they claim he played in Wednesday's riot at the U.S. Capitol. So they're going back to his high school to express their outrage. I'm not sure I see the logic in it, but there you have it. Well, the Bible in a year sits atop Apple's podcast list. It's hosted by a Catholic priest, and in the story, Alexandria De Sanctis calls it a blazing sign of hope. Again, a new podcast, The Bible in a Year. Well, Joe Biden selected Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo for Commerce Chief, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh for Labor Secretary, and William Burns for CIA Director. We'll talk more about other appointments, his national security team that were announced uh, over the last few days as well. Well, Nancy Pelosi says she spoke to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about protecting the nuclear codes from the president. Uh, Let's tell the whole world uh, that no one's in charge. Sounds like a brilliant plan, unless you're trying to make a name for yourself. Meanwhile, Trump allies reelected to lead the uh, Republican National Committee as party forces uh, um, gather and face a reckoning. Marriott, Blue Cross, Blue Shield and Commerce Bank, they've suspended donations to lawmakers who objected to certifying the Electoral College vote. And Mozilla's CEO says deplatforming Trump isn't enough. Perhaps he should be physically injured. PGA strips uh, Trump Bedminster golf course of its 2022 championship. Under the heading of double standards, the days are, uh, are after permanently banning Trump for inciting violence, Twitter allows hang Mike Pence to trend. Hang the vice president of the United States. No joke. Instagram pulls a screenshot of the words or rather of the trend for violence and incitement. Pope Francis prays for capital violence victims, but not other victims of violence. And a measure creating a reparations committee advances at the Illinois State House. Well, around the nation, four are found uh, dead following an hours-long shooting spree in Chicago. And New York is throwing away vaccines rather than distributing them competently. And just one in 100,000 had severe allergic reactions to the vaccine. A study suggests Pfizer vaccine works against virus variants and at least 25 domestic terrorism cases opened in response to the Capitol riot and an off-duty Capitol police officer has died. Law enforcement officials cite suicide as the cause of death. Well, on this day in history, 1861, Alabama becomes the fourth state to withdraw from the Union. 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt proclaims the Grand Canyon National Monument It would become a national park in 1919. 1913, the first enclosed sedan-type automobile, a Hudson, goes on display at the 13th National Automobile Show in New York. And finally, on this day in history, 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General Luther Terry's issues Smoking and Health. It's a report that concludes that cigarette smoking contributes substantially to mortality from certain specific diseases and to overall the death rate. Well, Twitter announced the permanent suspension of President Trump's account on Friday following months of flagging his uh, tweets with warnings and days after the company said he violated its policies. The platform locked Trump out of his account for the first time this week. The social media company deemed a number of tweets connected to the violent protests on Capitol Hill on Wednesday as inflammatory. 
Well, after close review of recent tweets from the real at real Donald Trump account and the context around them, specifically how they are being received and interpreted on and off Twitter, so it's not just the words themselves, but how they imagine they're being interpreted. We have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence, the company wrote in a blog post. Later, when the president shared these uh, messages from the official at uh, POTUS handle, Twitter quickly took them down. He sent the same text out in a statement to White House reporters criticizing Twitter as an opponent of free speech and testing a potential new conservative social media platform in the future. Well, the official account, account rather, had until that point not shared any tweet since late December. It will be transferred to President-elect Joe Biden after Inauguration Day and remains active. Well, the president's account uh, was suspended on Wednesday night after he posted a video with a message for protesters who had stormed the Capitol earlier. After violence that had led to multiple deaths, Trump told them to go home, but maintained that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from him. Twitter removed the president's video before suspending his account and warned that further violations of the platform's policy could result in a permanent suspension, which they have now apparently imposed. Well, in the aftermath of the storming of the Capitol, uh, social media giants Twitter and Facebook are working to working rather in concert to enforce the Democrat and left media narrative suspended President Trump's account over the dubious claim of seeking to prevent further incitements of violence. And while Twitter, uh, b- Twitter's ban rather on the president was initially temporary, it quickly followed Facebook's lead in permanently banning the president. But that was just the beginning. Silicon Valley tycoons elected to go f- uh, full Orwellian by not only deplatforming the president, but also going after recent social media startup Parler, which conservatives and Trump supporters have been flocking to in droves in recent months. Well, Google was the first to initiate the purge, announcing that it had banned the Parler app from its store because it claimed the free speech promoting platform had failed to follow Google's guidance against preventing violent speech. Hours later, Apple followed suit by banning Parler from its app store as well. Then came what might become the nail in Parler's coffin. Amazon Web Services suspended its hosting service for Parler, and prospects for an adequate replacement aren't great. It's devastating is what it is. It's an assault on everybody, the CEO of Parler, John Matz, explained. They're all working together to make sure at the same time we would lose access to not only your apps or rather our apps, but they are actually shutting all of our servers off as well. Well, they made an attempt to not only kill the app, but to actually destroy the entire company. He added, we're going to try our best to get back online as quickly as possible, but we're having a lot of trouble because every vendor we talk to says they won't work with us because if Apple doesn't approve and Google doesn't approve, they won't. Well, predictably, Amazon justified its actions with false equivalency, asserting that it cannot provide services to a customer that is unable to effectively identify and remove content that encourages or incites violence against others. It's a sick twist on the game of um, sharks and minnows became a censor or you'll be censored. Well, the clear goal for the totalitarians and their left media cohorts is to consolidate power by creating the dubious notion that Trump and anyone who supported him, including the Republican Party and conservatives in mass, are dangerous pariahs who must be silenced. Nothing could be more anti-American or dangerous to our national discourse. Do Democrats want civil war? 
Well, the reason behind big tech's willingness to squelch free speech likely has as much to do with cronyism as it does ideology. Democrats have long blamed social media for allowing Trump's 2016 election, and they've repeatedly demanded that misinformation and hate speech be removed from these supposedly open forum platforms. Big tech seeks to um, curry favor uh, with Democrats and now in control of both House and the Senate and the executive branch with the aim of getting the federal government to back off its trust busting and regulatory efforts. Secondly, these tech giants have found a convenient excuse to underhandedly suppress marketplace competition. Finally, the hypocrisy of big tech would be funny if it wasn't such a dire threat to liberty itself. In a classic example of a statement that didn't age well, back in 2015, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey insisted Twitter stands for freedom of expression. Twitter stands for speaking truth to power. Well, now Dorsey and his fellow fascist tech tycoons are using their near mono, uh, uh, monopolistic powers to silence anyone attempting to say unapproved language. Meanwhile, big tech seems to have no problem with actual dictators like Iran's Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini using its platform to call for violence against Israel and the U.S. or with hosting the Chinese-created TikTok app, which is notorious for stealing user data. Oh, and trending on Twitter over the, uh, the weekend, hang Mike Pence. So it's difficult to know what uh, what the philosophy actually is and whether or not it's ever going to be consistently applied as opposed to ideologically applied. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the top Republican in the House of Representatives on Sunday called for a racketeering probe into large technology companies who over the weekend took action against Parler, a social media website. This is clearly a violation of antitrust, civil rights, and the RICO statute. There should be a racketeering investigation on all of the people that coordinated this attack on not only the company, but on all those like us, like me, like you, uh, Maria, as he was being interviewed. Representative Nunez said he's the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee. He was speaking uh, at Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo. Well, after Twitter banned President Trump and some of his users, Parler saw its traffic explode. Soon, though, Google announced that it removed Parler from its uh, online stores, a move followed by Apple. Then Amazon announced that it was suspending Parler from its web hosting service as well. The CEO is now suing Amazon and perhaps others, saying that he will pursue the full extent of the law in addressing all of this. The um, post-editorial board, I thought, had an interesting perspective on all of this in which they write, so Twitter has permanently banned President Donald Trump's account. While this will please Democrats and perhaps lessen the justifiable heat the company is taking from regulators, it just proves again that Twitter's claim that it is just a platform are hogwash. Some of Trump's tweets were untrue and incendiary, but so are Ayatollah Khomeini's. His account is still up. The difference is Twitter is run by American liberals who only really police one type of person of one political persuasion. It's a little ridiculous that what finally did Trump in was tweeting that he wouldn't be attending Joe Biden's inauguration. Twitter twisted that to mean that he still won't accept the results of the election, which just shows they're looking for an excuse rather than let the readers judge uh, for themselves, they chose rather to pull the plug. Well, the uh, the uh, paper, again, the uh, the post, uh, this paper has a bit of history with Twitter's bias, seeing as they shut us out um, over the 
Hunter Biden's story, which was true, is true. That uh, incident proved that they fact check stories critical of Democrats far more aggressively than they do for Republicans, just as they police conservatives far more than liberals. If Twitter was a private publisher, this would be uh, annoying but unavoidable. But it isn't. It's a platform that, thanks to Section 230, faces no responsibility for what's tweeted. Twitter gets to censor whomever it likes, but throws up its hands at hate speech and libel with a not our problem. Well, this is untenable. Either Section 230, rather, needs to be repealed and Twitter uh, must responsibly police who it hosts or Twitter needs to step back and let the public decide what is acceptable or not. Jarrett Stepman points out that the purge has begun. Where it stops, well, nobody actually knows. Well, in the weeks since the November presidential election, numerous liberals, leftists and other opponents of the president have called for a purge of him and his supporters from public life, a purge of the president and his supporters from public life. Just days ahead of the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, those purges had begun. Those actions appear to be targeted and coordinated. It's a deeply disturbing trend given that Biden and his fellow Democrats are less than 10 days from effectively controlling both Congress and the executive branch. And while Biden may be preaching unity in some of his public statements, he hasn't refrained from, for example, comparing his opponents to Nazis. Worse, Biden's allies are almost universally celebrating the purges and calling for more retributions against political enemies. That's apparently what the anti-Trump Lincoln Project intends to do, namely create a blacklist of people who worked for the Trump administration. Meanwhile, an editor at Forbes magazine, Randall Lane, warned that there would be a truth reckoning for companies that hire or do business with former Trump staffers. They should be forbidden the right to support themselves. Wasn't McCarthyism supposed to be a bad thing? Well, apparently not so much in 2021. Well, these attempted purges aren't being engaged in only by media and advocacy groups. Uh, Trump was banned on Twitter and Facebook and other platforms. Twitter official statements cited risk of further incitement of violence from Trump's tweets about not attending the Biden inauguration. But its justification still rings hollow, given how they allow the Chinese Communist Party, Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro and the Ayatollah of Iran to have a platform, as uh, many have pointed out. Well, that only adds to the long list of uneven enforcement actions that they've uh, that we've seen in recent years from big tech, which almost always airs on the side of shutting down right leaning voices, including the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal before anyone else. And while Twitter was banning Trump, other big tech companies were smashing alternatives to Twitter. Apple announced and I won't go over all of that. Uh, Amazon announced Twitter and so on. Well, Parler might very well have violated the terms of service for those companies. But the way this all occurred at once and to a platform championing free speech is disturbing. Mozilla CEO Michael Baker, um, or Mitchell Baker rather, announced that deplatforming people from its service wasn't enough and that change requires more than just the temporary silencing or permanent removal of bad actors. Mozilla owns Firefox, a major web browser. Now, what What are they considering as being enough? If silencing one's ideological opponents isn't enough, what do they think is enough? What's perhaps the more shocking is the uh, dramatic difference in how these same companies treat the left. Last year, a book in defense of looting received systematic media coverage and plenty of prominent commentators even defended vandalism and property destruction in the wake of the riots as nonviolent. 
Some went so far as to say that violence is an acceptable means of affecting policy change. When did that stop? Well, that, by contrast, was not met with mass social media purges and deplatforming. It was championed. Tech companies have the right to set their own policies, yet it's hard to overlook the rampant inconsistencies and the double standards with which they apply. The summer of love was one thing, storming the Capitol another. If even the president can be silenced by big tech, the cabal, if you will, what's the average American to do when that mighty metaphorical digital knee comes down on their neck? Big tech is signaling to half the country what they're um, they very soon also might be silenced. They too. Well, in Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural address after the highly contentious 1800 presidential election we talked about last week that nearly ended in civil war, he said that we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, the two major parties at the time. Those who opposed Republican government, Jefferson says, were marginal and that his political opponents should be debated, not silenced by force. He said, if there be any among us, who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as the monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. Well, in November, it was written, not all kinds of political unity are the same. Bridging political divides and treating all Americans as fellow countrymen is one kind. Crushing dissent and coordinating with institutions of power to silence critics and political opponents is another but not um, not one that can exist in a system of ordered liberty. And that is the system, at least, we have aspired to. It's troubling to see the latter as the direction in which America is heading, but it certainly seems to be the direction America is heading. Meanwhile, the spokesman for Chancellor Angela Merkel said on Monday that the German leader regards President Donald Trump's eviction from Twitter by the company to be problematic. Twitter permanently suspended the president, as you know. Well, asked about Twitter's decision, the chancellor um, uh, spokesperson, Stefan Seiberg, said social media companies bear great responsibility for political communication not being poisoned by hatred, by lies, and by incitement of violence. He says it's um, right not to stand back with uh, when such content is posted, for example, by flagging it, but qualified um, that the freedom of opinion is a fundamental right of elementary significance. Well, Merkel's uh, spokesperson went on to say that the U.S. ought to follow Germany's example and how it handles online incitement rather than leaving it up to tech companies to make their own rules. Germany, German law rather compels these companies to remove possibly illegal material within 24 hours of being notified or face up to $60.8 million in fines. This fundamental right can be intervened in, but according to the law and within the framework defined by lawmakers there, not according to a decision by the management of a social media platform. Seen from this angle, the chancellor considers it problematic that the accounts of the U.S. president have now been permanently blocked. Well, she went on through her spokesperson from there raising concerns about what this means. By the way, Parler's uh, CEO is suing Amazon for suspending the app from the cloud service, claims uh, antitrust violations and breach of contract. He's saying that he's also willing to go to the full extent of the law to address his grievance. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Thomas Perry, Images and Idols, Christianity for the Christian Life. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, House Republicans blocked a quick consideration of a bill calling on Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove President Donald Trump from office with the fallout from last week's Capitol riot storming the Capitol. Well, Democrats asked for consideration of a bill calling on the vice president to mobilize the 25th Amendment. But Representative Alex Mooney, a Republican from West Virginia, objected today. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she would bring the bill to the floor if the unanimous consent request was blocked. Well, the calls for the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment come from top Democrats in both chambers of Congress. Last week, Chuck Schumer and other Democrats urged the vice president to immediately invoke the 25th Amendment, calling it the quickest and most effective way to remove the president from office. Schumer, though, warned that if Pence and the cabinet did not take that path, Congress could reconvene to impeach the president. They've got lots of practice at it. Well, the 25th Amendment includes a section allowing the vice president and a majority of cabinet members to declare the president unable to perform the job. A senior Trump administration official told Fox News that Pence has been involved, rather has not been involved in any 25th Amendment conversations. The calls for Trump's removal come after the president spoke at a rally on Wednesday telling supporters that he would never concede. Well, what is uh, the process that's being considered to remove the president, who will only be in office fewer than two weeks, Well, after the riot on the Capitol, congressional Democrats increasingly are calling for his removal. Uh, And I wanted to share some points that might help us uh, understand what they're considering doing and what would be required. First, the president uh, would be the first president uh, in the context, theoretically, that this uh, removing the president from office would create two historic precedents. One would be the he would be the first president to be impeached twice and second If Vice President Mike Pence were to become the 46th president with a term expiring on January 20th, it would be the shortest presidential term in American history. President William Henry Harris died 31 days into his term. Well, here are some things to know about efforts to remove the president from office before his term ends in less than two weeks. Well, as I mentioned, House Speaker Pelosi and Senate uh, Democrat leader Charles Schumer have called for the vice president and the Trump administration, or at least the cabinet, to use the 25th Amendment to remove the president uh, from office. That's not likely to happen. Pelosi said the House could move to impeach the president if the cabinet uh, does not act. And in fact, we learned earlier in the day that that is precisely what the House is prepared to do. Now, what could the president be impeached for? Well, the charges that Democrats most often talk about are sedition, incitement to riot and insurrection, or in aiding and abetting a riot or seditious acts. Well, this approach should be different from the House's 2019 impeachment of the president on two articles that didn't allege a crime but specified abuse of power and obstruction of justice. It's not sedition that would be ridiculous or aiding and abetting. Robert uh, Ray, a former independent counsel who investigated President Bill Clinton and was a lawyer for Trump in the 2020 Senate impeachment trial. But an impeachment alleging incitement of a riot or aiding and abetting would not suffer the same defect as the earlier impeachment. He told the Daily Signal at least there would be an alleged crime. A factual basis would be the challenge. 
Well, the federal statute on sedition defines it as conduct promoting the overthrow of the U.S. government. Now, both Republicans and Democrats referred to the articles, uh, rather the actions of the mob uh, that broke into the Capitol and overwhelmed police as an insurrection. Federal law defines an insurrection as whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engage, uh, engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto. Federal riot law includes provisions on those with intent or incite a riot or aid and abet any person in inciting or participating in or carrying out a riot. Well, in Trump's speech on Wednesday at the Save America rally before the uh, event took place, which many on both sides criticized as inflammatory, the president said at one point, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Now, this, it seems to me, would be relevant in determining if uh, the president could be impeached for insurrection to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. However, Trump also told the crowd fraud breaks up everything, doesn't it? When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to be uh, to go by very different rules. That, too, will be uh, weighing heavily into their decision, I would imagine. Well, the president also said we fight like, well, heck. And if you don't fight like that, um, you're not going to have a country anymore. So these were serious terms upon which uh, he was um, urging the crowd to march peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol. U.S. Capitol Police announced Thursday night that one officer had died of his injuries. Twitter, the social media platform that Trump long has used to spread his message, announced to suspending permanently his account. And beyond his words at the rally at uh, uh, our news reports uh, that the president resisted security, the Capitol and senior Trump administration officials had uh, to go around him to bring the D.C. National Guard to help bring order to the building. Now, is that a reliable account? I, I don't know, because that is uh, apparently rumored. A key issue to focus on is what the president did after the riots and whether he refused to deploy forces to secure the Capitol. Now, Twitter uh, refused to allow his statements that said, please return home. They they banned um, that along with other things they thought were incendiary. So to what degree are they culpable in uh, shutting down the message that might have had some impact on those events? Now, all impeachment proceedings should be based on whether an official office holder poses a danger to the country, the government, or the office. Uh, that should always be the justification for impeachment. And then, again, this is a quote from a, a, a Trump attorney. It's not to censure or punish. It's meant to protect the country. You could make an argument that the president has enormous power he could exercise in 12 days. Representative Ilhan Omar announced on Wednesday that she was drawing up articles of impeachment against the president as well. And the um, process will move forward in the next few days. Well, what about time expiring for a Senate trial? Although only one Senate Republican, Mitt Romney, voted to remove Trump in last year's trial, Senator Ben Sass on Friday morning said that he would consider supporting articles of impeachment if the House sent them to the Senate. Senator Lisa Murkowski, a Republican from Alaska, called Friday for Trump to resign. And even if the House impeaches Trump next week, the likelihood that the Senate could or would reconvene in time to hold a trial before Biden's inauguration as president seems unlikely. Well, the House could draft articles of impeachment and vote on it in 12 days, um, 
It's not likely that there's time for the Senate to hold a trial, but Trump could be the first president in American history to be impeached twice. The Senate would have to come back into session to address House charges against President Trump. The Senate calendar has the body uh, scheduled to be in recess until January 20th. Still, that early return to Washington isn't impossible. There is conceivably time to do that. Impeachment doesn't have to be drawn out. Impeachment is intended to be a measure of an emergency, and again, based on the danger that that individual poses to the country at that time. So what would be the point of impeaching President Trump now with so few days uh, remaining in his administration? Well, Article Article 1, rather, Section 3, Clause 7 of the Constitution says that if a federal official is convicted in an impeachment trial, uh, judgment in uh, case of impeachment shall not extend further than to remove from office disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Now, one of the motivations might be, because we've heard rumors that the president is eyeing a run again in 2024, is it would deprive him of the opportunity to run again. Legal experts debate whether disqualification from running for future office requires the same two-thirds majority as removal from office or just a simple majority. It would not be wise to rush an impeachment for the purpose of preventing him from holding office again and bar him from running in 2024, say some observers. That should be something voters decide. So the House um, uh, could impeach and the Senate soon uh, um under a, uh, to be soon under slim Democrat control, could hold a trial even after Donald Trump leaves office. Um, again, a, a real possibility. Basically, that would be to disqualify Trump from running for president again, as many suspect he will in 2024. Um, and I guess that answers the question, too. Could the president be impeached after leaving? The answer is yes. Could Biden's Justice Department charge Trump after he leaves? Well, before the Capitol riot, many on the left clamored for Trump to be prosecuted for something, well, literally anything. Biden announced this week that he will nominate a federal appeals judge, Merrick Garland. Uh, he is of the D.C. Circuit to be his attorney general. President Barack Obama nominated him to the Supreme Court in March of 2016. The Republican-led Senate, you might recall, declined to consider that nomination. His choice of Garland as attorney general makes a political prosecution somewhat unlikely, however. Um, Ray secured a plea deal with uh, Bill Clinton just before the 43rd president left office in which Clinton agreed to surrender his law license and admit to making misleading statements under oath uh, to avoid future prosecution. In the past, the judgment of the Justice Department was to leave well enough alone with former presidents. It's not clear what will be the case this time around. Biden's choice of Garland as attorney general, again, makes a political prosecution somewhat unlikely. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we'll have uh, Thomas Perry in a classic interview, share from his book, Images and Idols, Christianity for the Christian Life. That's coming up in our next couple of segments right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Donald Trump ordered U.S. flags across the nation and abroad to be flown at half-staff until January 13th, in honor of the service and sacrifice of law enforcement, U.S. Capitol Police, and the two USCP officers who died in the wake of the protests at the Capitol, one during the melee there on January 6th, another 
uh, who is presumed to have taken his own life. As a sign of respect for the service and sacrifice of United States Capitol Police Officer Brian D. Sicknick and Howard Liebengood, and all Capitol Police officers and law enforcement across this great nation by the authority vested in me as President of the United States by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, I hereby order that the flag of the United States shall be flown at half-staff at the White House and in all public buildings and grounds, at all military posts and naval stations, and on all naval vessels of the federal government in the District of Columbia and throughout the United States and its territories and possessions until sunset January 13. I also direct that the flag shall be flown at half-staff for the same length of time at all United States embassies, legations, consular offices, and other facilities abroad, including all military facilities and naval vessels and stations. Well, the U.S. Capitol Police has confirmed the off-duty death of Officer Liebengood. That was on uh, January the 9th, three days after events on the Capitol. He was assigned to the Senate division and has been with the department since April of 2005. Our thoughts and prayers go out to his family and friends and colleagues. We ask that his family and other USCP officers and their families' privacy be respected during this profoundly difficult time. Well, the cause of leaving goods death hasn't been released. It's unclear if the death is related to the unrest on the 6th, during which the other officer, Sicknick, suffered injuries. Sicknick died at about 9.30 p.m. the following day. Uh, According to the department, Sicknick was injured while physically engaging with protests. He returned to the division office and collapsed the department's announcement states. He was taken to a local hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. Sicknick's father said Vice President Mike Pence and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called the family to offer their condolences. During the call, Pelosi invited the family to the Capitol to pick out a uh, a spot for a plaque in Sicknick's honor. Funeral services also will be held at the Capitol. Senator Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri, a member of the Senate Republican leadership, said that he will be interested in finding out if there uh, was a connection with Officer Liebengood. Well, with only two weeks until Inauguration Day, President-elect Joe Biden on Friday revealed 21 appointments to his new National Security Council team, calling the members diverse and experienced. Many of the appointees worked under the Obama administration, Obama 2.0, with some in the White House and some in the Obama NSC. The National Security Council plays a critical role in keeping our nation safe and secure, Biden said in a statement. These crisis-tested, deeply experienced public servants will work tirelessly to protect the American people and restore America's leadership in the world. They will ensure that the needs of working Americans are front and center in our national security policymaking and our country will be better for it. Well, according to the White House, the NSC is the president's principal forum for considering national security and foreign policy matters with his senior national security advisors and cabinet officials. Well, since its creation under President Harry Truman, the council's role has been to advise the president on national security, foreign policy, and to coordinate among the many government agencies. Ariana Berengot was nominated as senior advisor to the national security advisor. She previously served in the Obama administration as speechwriter and counselor to then Deputy Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and as a founding director at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Caitlin Durkovich uh, was nominated for senior director for resilience and response. 
Durkovich served as Assistant Secretary for Infrastructure Protection and as Chief of Staff for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama administration. Taryn Chahabra was nominated for Senior Director of Technology and National Security role. During the Obama administration, he served on the National Security Council staff as Director of Strategic Planning. Chahabra also served as a speechwriter to the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon. The Senior Director for Global Health Security and Biodense, or rather Biodefense nomination went to Elizabeth Cameron, who previously served on the White House National Security Council staff, where she created the Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense and was instrumental in launching its agenda. She also served at the Defense Department as an office director and senior advisor and at the State Department, where she worked on global uh, threat reduction programs. Rebecca Bracato, who has been nominated as the Senior Director for Legislative Affairs for the incoming administration, previously served in the White House as Director for Legislative Affairs on the National Security Council and as House Legislative Affairs Liaison during the Obama administration. Tanya Bradshaw was nominated as Senior Director for Partnerships and Global Engagement. She was a former Chief of Staff with Representative Don Beyer. And during the Obama-Biden administration, she served as Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. There's Emily Horn, there's Peter Harrell, there's Ryan Harper, there's Sasha Baker, Johannes um, Abraham, and others, most of whom are retreads from the Obama administration, which is not intended to be a slight, just that they have served under the Obama-Biden administration previously. President-elect Biden also nominated William Burns as CIA director. The Democratic president-elect on Monday said he's nominating William Burns for director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Burns is 64, was a deputy secretary of state during the Obama administration, held a number of positions in the George W. Bush administration. He was also an ambassador to Jordan during the administrations of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Uh, Burns left the State Department in 2014, did not serve in the Trump administration, spending time as the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Biden's team described Burns as a career diplomat who is full of integrity. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Representative uh, Cortez of New York and Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, will now be on the House Oversight and Reform Committee. The newly elected Representative Cory Bush of Missouri will join them on that committee. And freshman Representative Jamal Bauman of New York will be on the House Science, Space and Technology Committee. In the 2020 election, the American people overwhelmingly cast their ballots for a historically diverse and dynamic Democrat House majority that will fight for the people, Pelosi said in a statement, reinvigorated by our outstanding freshman members, strengthened by our returning members and inspired by the people whom they uh, are honored to represent our majority is ready to build back better in a way that will advance justice and prosperity for all Americans. Additionally, the first two openly gay members of uh, Congress, the newly elected uh, representatives Richie Torres and uh, Mondaire Jones, both of New York, received assignments as well. Torres was named to the House Homeland Security Committee and Jones to the House Education and Labor Committee. Why, why their sexuality is relevant to those appointments is something of a mystery to me, but uh, both said they were honored to, to be appointed. Well, the assignments reflect a pretty leftward shift among Democrats in Congress. Bauman, Bush, Ocasio-Cortez, and Tlaib have all received endorsements from the Democratic Socialists of America. In October of uh, 2019, in an interview with City and State New York, 
Jones stopped short of calling himself a democratic socialist, but said he viewed himself as sharing many of the same views as democratic socialists. I mean, he has his political career to consider. Torres, despite being progressive, doesn't associate himself with the squad and has been at odds with the democratic socialists of America, particularly when it comes to their views on Israel. Torres is pro-Israel, which has become increasingly rare on the left, said uh, or rather with Tlaib and fellow squad members, Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota being vocal critics of the Jewish state. Torres also denounced Democratic Socialists of America leadership regarding their position on Israel after an interview with the New York City DSA co-chair, saying the leadership of the DSA declines to affirm that the state of Israel should exist. Insane is the word that comes to mind, he tweeted in August. Torres also uh, disagreed with Democratic uh, Socialists over the defund police movement, which he opposed according to The Post. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next, we'll hear a classic interview with Thomas Perry, author of Images and Idols, Christianity for the Christian Life. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, what does God have to do with your creativity? And what does your creativity have to do with God? Well, these are the questions that Thomas Terry and Ryan Lister sought to answer in their new book, Images and Idols. It's not a how-to book full of strategies, tips, or even tricks on how to be more creative. Instead, it's a book that digs into the heart of creativity, the purpose of it, and how it gives purpose to the creator as well, the person who creates that art. Um, They write and craft and build and design and compose. For what? Well, this is a question for those who want to understand the why of creativity. Uh, If you want to understand our creativity, we must begin with God, they say in the book. Well, whether um, it's art, design, music, architecture, writing, or anything else, this book will move readers to invest deeply in creative work because God put the desire and the ability in us and because it shares God with the world, and it will pull the reader away from idolizing creativity. Again, the book is titled Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life, co-authored by Thomas Terry and J. Ryan Lister. Now, my guest is Thomas Terry. He is the executive director and founder of The Humble Beast, a collective of rap and hip-hop artists. Terry is a member of the Beautiful Eulogy, an exceptional hip-hop group from right here in Portland. He's also an elder at Trinity Church of Portland and co-creator of Canvas, a conference on theology and creativity. He joins us today to talk about creativity and what it has to do with God and um, the converse as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. For, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you letting me on. Absolutely. Well, this is an interesting approach to a subject that has occurred to most creative people at some point, but perhaps um, weren't altogether clear. Where do I where do I go with this? Well, we I can kind of give you the, the start of, of why we thought yeah. it was an important subject to deal with. So I come from uh, a long line of creatives. So uh, I, I came from a culture that was deeply embedded and rooted in hip-hop culture. Uh, and so all we knew and all we breathed was creativity. Uh, it was how we expressed ourselves. It was how we uh, related with one another. Uh, and then I, uh, around the age of 18, I became a Christian, and I really felt like there was a lot of uh, discontinuity between my creativity and my creator. Uh, and, and my church didn't really quite know what to do with me. They didn't know how to file me. Uh, they didn't understand me. I was one of those weird, uh, creative people. Uh, so they just didn't understand me. And because they didn't understand me, I didn't really quite fit in within the church context. And so 
it just was this uh, tension for, for me as a Christian uh, and, a, and a creative living in a very linear and uh, you know black and white world. Uh, and so as I began to grow in my faith and, and began to understand my role as a as a Christian and my identity became more rooted in my Christian experience and less in my artistic and creative experience, I began to see a lot of other folks like me who were wrestling with the same issues. Uh, and so we were able to look at the culture and see how young creatives wrestle with identity, how they work for identity, uh, how they build everything for their self and how they uh, use creativity as the sole means of, uh, you know, expressing themselves. And so we decided, uh, both Ryan and I, that we, we felt it was important to address them where they were. Uh, and so one, one of the aspects of my, uh, my music life was in a, in a group called Beautiful Eulogy. And we would mm-hmm. travel the country and we'd see all of these young, creative Christians who were really wrestling with the tension of creativity and theology. They just could not reconcile it. And so Ryan is a systematics theology professor, uh, and, and I was a performer. So we got the performer and the professor in one room and tried to figure out a way that we might be able to... Uh, communicate effectively to a culture that so desperately needs to know how to reconcile your creativity and theology. What a great collaboration. Do you think this tension is relatively recent, or has this always been a strain within Christianity where there's been a very narrow definition of what's acceptable in terms of creativity? Um, What's your thought on whether or not this is more recent than one might think? Well, I think if you were going to go all the way back, um, if you moved yourself back into the Renaissance era, I don't think that that was really an issue. I think that there was a time in in the culture where art and creativity w- was completely compatible with robust theology. But I would say sometime like maybe in the 80s, 70s and the 80s, um, I, I, I began to see you know, even as a young person, this kind of sacred and secular divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so because art and creativity uh, is not typically filed in a category of absolutes, uh, it's considered taboo. Anything that is relative is just kind of put off, or anything that is abstract is, is put away as secular. And so what you really saw was uh, the Christian culture gravitate more towards things that were didactic and less about things that were beautiful. And so I think that for the last 20, 30 years, there has been this massive divide. Uh, and it's been happening for so long that people just don't even think about creativity mm-hmm. and, and Christianity. They're just in totally different sects of life. The first chapter of your book is titled The Creator of Creativity, which gives us the context in which to better understand the creative impulse. Uh, talk a little bit about what God has to do with our creativity. Well, yeah, if you go back in the very beginning, when God created all things, after everything he created, uh, he, he said it was good. Uh, and you know, then he created um, man and woman, and after that he said it was very good. And, and really what you get is a sense of, God who created finding pleasure and delight and satisfaction in that which he created. So you see that one of these attributes, one of these qualities of God is creative. He speaks and things come into existence. 
Uh, and, and in many ways, creatives have been trying to follow that pattern ever since. And so what we wanted to do is help the creative think and know that creative, creativity is not something new. It is not something mm-hmm. that is detached from, the, from God. He is a designer. He is creative. He speaks and colors and textures uh, come out of nothing. And, and I think that a lot of creatives don't think in those categories. They think of God in terms of morals only, right and wrong, absolutes only. Uh, and so we wanted to start at the very beginning and put on display the beauty of God's creation uh, through the grid of God, the, the divine creator. And that, help, that would help to center people on who is this God and how does he work? Uh, so that's where we started. From there the you go beginning. to who God is and how he works, to how he uh, put that creative impulse, because we are created in his image, into us, and how that expression is uh, a, an act of worship and a reflection of who he is and an, a communication of, of God into the culture or into the world. Yeah, and, and to center the creative, to help them understand that all creativity is derivative. It all comes from God. We create. See, God creates out of nothing but we create out of something. Uh, God has to give us all of the resources, the mind and the fingers and the hands and and the vision uh, to even create. So we wanted to put that in its proper context and say that your art is derivative, and that is humbling. That humbles us. That puts us in our appropriate place to say that we create with the resources that God gave us, and we are accountable to God. So when we create, we not only create with the resources that he gives us, but we create for the purpose of worship. Now, is all creativity created equal uh, in that it has value in terms of an expression of worship? Or are there categories in which we might put creativity? Some things are a reflection of worship, other things less so. Is it possible for creativity to be um, uh, corrupted or um, to somehow miss the uh, the reflection of God in its expression? That was well, sure. inartfully the, put, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think in, for the Christian, I think that every act of creativity can be worship. Mm-hmm. But I think that's largely dependent on the posture of the heart. So you can even create things that the world would view as, I, I don't know, secular or, or uh, you know, irreligious. So you can paint a picture of a tree uh, and all of its complexities and get all of the textures right uh, and still do that from a posture of worship if your heart is right, if you're finding satisfaction in your work, if you recognize even as you approach your art that it is God-given. And so there's, there's a sense of owing or, or nodding to God in your creative work. So I think all of that can be worship. And I think with the non-Christian, I think they, too, create from a posture of worship. I just think that their worship is misguided. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their worship might be worship for themselves. They might be creative, creating things to put themselves in the public sphere to receive praise for themselves. Or they might be creating uh, to worship uh, you know, all kinds of things in their life. I, I think we are made to worship. We are creatures of worship but we don't always worship rightly. I think the Christian can do it rightly. I think the non-Christian will continue to pursue to try to find satisfaction in what he creates until he lands at the place of appropriate worship with his work. 
We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking this afternoon with Thomas Terry, who, along with uh, J. Ryan Lister, authored the book Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. It's uh, part of the Reclaiming uh, Creativity series. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Thomas Terry. He's the founder and executive director of Humble Beast, a record label and ministry here in Portland. As a spoken word artist and a member of Beautiful Eulogy, he seeks to bring creativity and theology together to glorify the Lord who created them both. He lives uh, here in the Portland area with his wife and two boys and uh, just delighted to, and I should mention, he's also executive pastor at Trinity Church here in Portland. He co-authored the book with uh, Professor J. Ryan Lister, who is a professor of theology at Western Seminary here in Portland. He's the author of The Presence of God, Its Place in the Story of Scripture and the Story of Our Lives, and serves as director of Doctrine and Discipleship for Humble Beast, where he helped start the Canvas Conference. He lives here in Portland as well with his family. Uh, wife and four children. We're talking about the book they co-authored, Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. It is a part of the uh, Reclaiming Creativity series. Now, as a series of books, what do you aim to contribute to creatives in um, in the Christian church to help them see their place in it and uh, the role that God is calling to them to and the value of creativity? Well, we we wanted to give people a foundation or a framework uh, to build upon. So the first book, Images and Idols, in the series is helping them to have a theology of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second book that we're working on is um, called Redesign Cathedrals. And really, the the desire in that book is to help reconcile the church and creative. Uh, we've seen over and over how the church finds it really difficult to relate with creatives. Um, the church sometimes doesn't understand or know how to use their creative gifts. And then we've also seen how the creative feels about the church. Many creatives feel like the church exploits the creative, uh, how the church only uses them for their creative contributions. And so what we wanted to do is create a resource that would help Christians uh, will creative Christians understand their role and their and their work in the local church, and then also help the church to understand and value the creative in their place. A lot of creatives tend to find their identity only in their work, and so the the church would do really well to view the creative as a whole, not just a creative, but a whole. And so we want to help the creative think about themselves in that category and how they might be able to serve the church in other ways other than their creative gifts, but also with their creativity. So that's the the aim of the second book. We want to help develop mature, creative Christians. And then the third book will be uh, the book on how to use creativity to engage culture. Um, The world that we live in uh, views beauty as the new apologetic, and so we want to help equip the creative to use their God-given creativity uh, to engage the world with truth, but also with beauty. Uh, and so that, that's our aim in this series, is really to disciple creatives holistically, give them a theological framework, help them find their place within the church, and help them as they engage culture. Uh, all for the glory of God and for the good of people. Now, you mentioned that oftentimes creatives feel that the church exploits them for the creativity that they bring to it. Is that is the converse also true, that sometimes creatives 
um, exploit opportunities that only the church provides? Is there a misunderstanding that that crosses um, both both sides, oh, if you will? Absolutely. absolutely. I think what you have between uh, the church and the creative is is, is more like a marriage, uh, a marriage with a lot of communication issues. And hmm. so we, our desire is to step in and be a marriage counselor and say uh, to the church, here is how your creatives feel within the church. And then also to explain to the creatives, this is how the church interprets what you say about her. Uh, so I think both bring some unique um, perspective to the table, uh, but when they're not speaking each other's language yeah. and they're not meeting each other's needs, just things go all, it just goes all wrong. So we want to mediate that conversation. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, it's probably easier to envision musicians in the church. There's a place for musicians to uh, use their creative capacity within the church. What are some of the challenges with, uh, with artists and uh, creatives whose um, creativity falls outside what traditionally has been uh, shared from the platform in worship and in other contexts in the church? Well, what you have in the church is a collective of redeemed people uh, who were given gifts by God to serve those very people. And so I think what, hap- what has to happen first is the leadership of the church, uh, the pastors and the elders need to find uh, and create space for people to just use their gifts. Uh, and so what you have is uh, only musicians feel like they have a place in the church because it's the only thing that people uh, put an emphasis on. But I think there's a multiplicity of ways for creatives to use their gifts to serve people. Um, and, and so I, 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 and I don't think that creativity is limited only to, uh, you know, music and, and design. Um, you know, there, there is beauty and creativity when it comes to, uh, you know, interior design uh, or when it comes to, you know, even so far as plumbing. You know, you have all of these people using their unique gifts in a very creative way for the benefit of the church. But I do think it, it starts with the church providing uh, a healthy framework for people to use their gifts whether they be creative or non-creative, mm-hmm. we have to understand that everything that we do in terms of our gifts is for the benefit of other people. And when you think about it that way, um, it, it actually opens things up into a way wider sphere to use your creative gifts. You know, that's such an important uh, idea because many believers uh, feel that they are spectators in what's happening, but they're not participants in the body of Christ functioning as a community and a family. There's no role for them to somehow plug in and use the considerable gifts that God has given each of us, whether it's creative or in some other way. How can the body of Christ reflect all that God has made each of us as individuals and collectively as a community? And that, I think, is the real challenge in in the church. I think it probably... Um, predates the 21st century, but it certainly is a challenge today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You wrote about the creativity of Christ and that um, it's an unusual connection. Why is it important for people invested in creative work to understand the creativity of Christ? How does that help us as members of his body? Well, I think if you begin to understand the nature and character of Christ, you not only see how he works uh, and how he loves and how he does things, which, which helps you to model him, 
but you also get a, a holistic picture of who he is. And I think by spending a, a concentrated amount of time to understand him as a creative God, uh, the way he creatively loves people, the way he spoke, the way he used parables, I think what that does is it brings into the church this idea that God was creative and you can be creative. I mean, we learn from Jesus how to love people by virtue of looking at the life and character of Jesus. We learn how to be righteous by looking at the character and qualities of Jesus Christ. If we look at Christ uh, and see his creativity at work, we can also model that creativity in a healthy way. So it's not something that's super strange or super foreign. The more we are made in Christ's image, the more we will look, look like him. But we can only begin to look like him if we study him rightly. And so I think it's, it's, it's vital for the Christian to flourish, uh, to understand the totality of Christ, not just these small little compartments mm-hmm. of Christ. Um, but that's, I think that's what a lot of creatives do, is they relegate Christ and his work to the religious aspects of life, but not in the creative aspects of life. And so it's, it's super important for the creative to know that. I love the quote on the back uh, of your book, God is reclaiming creativity for his glory and our good. And we would do well to consider all that he has in mind for us. You can certainly begin with the book, Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life, part of the Reclaiming Creativity series. What's the timeline on the additional volumes in this series? So we are in the process of writing the second book now, which mm-hmm. should launch early 2020. Uh, and then the next one, we're still figuring that out with Moody. So. <laughs> now, do you see this as uh, an individual read, or is would this book be useful in a group of creatives, uh, leadership in the church, sort of thinking through how um, uh, our creativity can better uh, can better be reflected within the context of Christian community? Yeah. Well, when we wrote the book, our aim was to help uh, creatives connect with their creative groups in their church. And so that's the whole, this whole book is written for that purpose. We really want it to be a discipleship manual for creatives. And so if you're a pastor, uh, you're a small group leader, and you have a bunch of creatives in your church, and you struggle with how to help them theologically and and creatively grow as a Christian, this book is a great resource for that. I mean, that's why we wrote it. You'll benefit by reading it as an individual, but you'll really flourish in the context of reading this book in community. I would agree. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us today. Absolutely. Thank really you for having me. Appreciate it. Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. The book is published by Moody. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, state officials still plan to vaccinate about 12,000 Oregonians per day by the end of next week, and they're going to deploy troops to help Oregon reach that goal. Starting with the Salem Fairgrounds, Governor Brown said on Friday, Oregon has faced escalating criticism for the slow rollout of its coronavirus vaccination program and a lack of clarity about who's going to get it and when. Oregon's vaccination rate as of January the 8th lags behind 39 other states. That's according to federal health data. Well, the governor and her top health lieutenant, Patrick Allen, presented a variety of steps the state's taking to make sure more people quickly get a shot of the coronavirus vaccine while cautioning that the pandemic could yet turn Uh, take a turn for the worse, especially after the recent winter holidays. We're still waiting to see the impact of our actions over the holidays and New Year's and whether a second and possibly worse winter surge 
is headed our way. Well, the first phase of the state's vaccination program is expected to get a boost tomorrow when the Oregon National Guard joins in helping Salem Health multi health's rather multi-day vaccination event at the Salem Health Grounds. And we'll see whether or not the National Guard uh, can make a difference in this effort. Meanwhile, Providence Health and Services has shut down a unit of its Northeast Portland Hospital after a major COVID-19 outbreak that's led to 49 staffers and patients contracting the virus. Well, the outbreak, the largest to date at a metro area hospital in the Portland area, is believed to have begun around the 20th of December and is centered in the hospital's 4K unit. Well, that's not a COVID unit, but rather treats patients who are stable but in need of ongoing intense care like stroke, trauma, brain injury, and so on. Well, a spokesperson from Providence, Gary Walker, confirmed the outbreak took place and added that 36 hospital workers and 13 patients contracted the virus. None of them have died. Most were asymptomatic or were uh, only mildly ill. Jeremy Shipley, a five-year veteran registered nurse, worked in the 4K unit and contracted the virus. He's recovering and is scheduled to return to work this weekend. But it's also uh, been devastating, he said, to catch COVID despite his meticulous attention to safety. I've been a champion of personal protection and caution, he said. I feel overwhelming uh, shame that I was the one on our staff who went down. Well, some Oregon hospitals have been hit hard by the virus. A total of 158 have contracted COVID at Salem Hospital since March. Another 87 have been infected at Good Shepherd Hospital in Hermiston since last summer. And Mercy Medical Center in Roseburg has uh, reported 61 COVID cases since last summer. Well, a legislative session unlike any other in Oregon's history opens today in Salem amid a pandemic. The differences will be evident starting on the very first day. There will be no ceremonial a joint session of the House and Senate, and Governor Kate Brown won't be giving a State of the State address. For at least the first few months of the session, committee hearings will be held on a virtual platform. Representative Marty Wild, Democrat from Eugene, who chairs the House Government uh, General Government Committee, said the upside is that some people could have um, have an easier time offering their input to pending legislation. We have now a lot of tools for people to be able to testify remotely, You don't even have to drive to Salem. You can testify from your home computer or by telephone. It's a similar setup to what's been used uh, during the interim committee hearings over the past nine months. Some Republican lawmakers have grumbled at coronavirus restrictions at the Oregon Capitol, but some advocacy groups have applauded the effort to allow remote testimony. Well, floor sessions will be held in person, but legislative leaders uh, say votes will take place, uh, no votes will take place until... April, or at least few of them, uh, with the hope that they uh, that the virus will no longer be spreading so rapidly. House Speaker Tina Kotek, a Democrat out of Portland, said last week the lawmakers are also facing the challenge of potential violence. The dynamic of the pandemic is difficult enough, she said, but to also have the threat of domestic terrorists trying to disrupt the democracy of the building brother, is a whole um, added extra dynamic to complicate things. Uh, right-wing protesters she immediately went to, although we've had months and months of left-wing protesters in Oregon. She points to right-wing protesters from Washington, D.C., some of whom were armed, attempted to break into the Oregon Capitol during a special session last month, she says. Um, So the concern, again, is only one-sided. It's an ideological concern. 
Well, if anything illustrated the need for Oregon to invest more in wildfire preparedness, it was last week's cluster of Labor Day infernos, or last year's, that chewed through a million acres of forest land, destroyed thousands of homes and structures, and killed nine fellow Oregonians. Well, despite scores of recommendations that the Governor's Council on Wildfire Response said were urgent back in 2019, the legislature made no headway on the issue last year after two Republican walkouts over climate change legislation. Governor Brown's hope of addressing some of those proposals is on the one of the legislature's special sessions didn't happen either, taking a backseat to more pressing pandemic-related funding and policing reforms. But the legislature's emergency board reluctantly made a tiny down payment on Friday, appropriating $17 million for the Office of State Fire Marshal and the Oregon Department of Forestry to invest in wildfire prevention and preparedness. Well, the spending was approved despite concerns from lawmakers uh, and legislative analysts and um, who expressed doubt the two agencies can even spend the money in the six months remaining in the current two-year budget cycle. They question whether the emergency board has the authority to do so, And we'll just keep our eyes on the money and what's uh, possible in these next few months before the end of the fiscal year. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for um, engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.